another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Maymer. And uh, with me today is uh, is my guest... Uh, I can use your last name, Michael? Absolutely. Okay, um, and uh, just to make sure I pronounce your last name right, My- Michael Cruz? That's correct. Cruz, like, like, but not spelt like... Uh, who's, who's that idiot in Washington with the last name Cruz? <laughs> oh, right, from the, the senator from Florida, is that that... Right, yeah, 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 yeah. You spelled completely different. You spelled the you spelled the Canadian way. That's right. It's very German. Yes, with the uh, with the K with a K. Exactly. Although when I went to Iowa, I was in the school in Iowa, and my my it's spelled with K, and uh, I guess the German pronunciation is Kruja. Oh, okay. Well, down in Iowa, there's loads of cruises everywhere. Down there, because of the uh, the uh, the German connection, everyone was calling me Cruzy. And I thought, why are you calling me Gus? Like, it's a nickname. My brother used it. He played hockey. People yell it. I just looked at people strangely, and then I realized that it was some sort of local, you know, oh, pronunciation. pronunciation of the last name. It was very strange. Anyways, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. And uh, let's see. So I got some biographical data. Now, you are uh, you're a, you're a para- paramedic. You're, you're in the Toronto area. Yeah. You're not in Sweden or anything like that. No, 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 definitely, definitely in, in the GTA. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you're you're Canadian like like me, and uh, and uh, you you work as a paramedic, right? I do. I'm an ad, I'm what's called an advanced care paramedic, uh, which uh, means that I've got a little bit of extra training over top of the uh, the entry training, um, and can do advanced life support and um, you know give drugs and help people out. Okay, cool. Now what's now you know. Sometimes it seems like there's a medical emergency and they send a fire truck, and sometimes they send a paramedic. Like, when is when sent? Ah, the great mystery. Yes. Um, it, it actually changes over time. They uh, Usually, right now, usually if you say you've got chest pain, uh, shortness of breath, uh, so you've got a respiratory issue, you've got a heart issue, um, or you're unconscious – those are kind of the three big ones. They will send a, a, a fire truck first. Usually, um, I mean, historically, because there's more fire stations in any given area than ambulance stations, uh, they they have in the past been closer. We're kind of edging up on them. Uh, we don't get there much later than they do. I actually work out of a fire hall, so we, if we get the call first, we tend to beat them there anyways. But uh, that's why, just so we can have ex- some extra help. There is a lot of um, headbutting that's going on in Toronto right now between fire and EMS that tend to not like each other very much. Right, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it, the more serious cases, we need a little extra help. We need to get there sooner. Um, there is some evidence that if you get there really, really soon and during a cardiac arrest or something, it can, it can certainly, certainly help. Um, but uh, that's a whole other... Whether or not we have to run for every emergency is a big... It's a big conflict between whether it does the patient any good or whether, compared to what the, the community expects, it's a big kind of uh, conflict. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Apparently, just like like just there aren't fires anymore, and uh, no, <laughs> no, they go to. I mean, I li- I live in the fire. I live in the fire. I work in the fire hall. They go out on on false alarms all the time. Uh, but working fires, that's a rarity in Ontario. Now, yeah. mind you, I worked in Buffalo when I did my preceptorship. In what's called my rideouts as a student. 
New York State has notoriously bad fire code, and there's a lot of very old buildings, and many of them are abandoned in Buffalo. So up here in Toronto, we used to make fun of them all the time when I was a kid. Like Irv Weinstein would come on and say, there's another fire in Tonawanda. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's not, that's, that can't be true. I went down there and worked. We went to a fire carl every single day. Wow. As a parent, when I was on a, I was doing fire standbys at fires, and those guys in Buffalo, those those guys and girls in Buffalo who are firefighters, they can knock down a fire in an hour. It is incredible, um, but they go to them all the time down there. Up here, we just don't get them. Wow. Okay. And so the majority of calls for firefighters up here are medical calls. Cool. Okay. All right. And uh, so obviously, no, I don't want to. You're not on to talk about the the uh, <laughs> evil firefighter conspiracy. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> But uh, yeah, as I was going to say, they they are sort of butting heads. I can imagine because you know, right in the old days, it was like, I guess it was something like fire departments were privately run, at least in the states, and so they would different private firehouses would arrive at the same fire, and and they would get into like turf wars. They would get into fist fights over who is. Can, can there is there to earn the fee, oh, and sure. yeah, and so while the you know the building is burning down, these firefighters are duking it out, and <laughs> so eventually I think they they kind of brought it under the public control in the states at least. I don't know if that was ever the case in Canada, but yeah, I'm not sure. I, I understand there was some sort of insurance kind of uh, thing going on too, where if you if you paid the insurance to a specific fire department, then they of course would put the fire out in your house, but if you hadn't paid their insurance. And they would just sort of show up and watch it burn, and oh, and, and uh, until you paid them, which was a and that's I don't, I'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not. Okay. Certainly, would never happen these days. These days, there tend to be weird turf wars where, if there's like for example, I grew up in Kitchener Waterloo, and there's Kitchener Fire Department and Waterloo Fire Department. Of course, the cities merge. Yeah. But there's a dividing line, and if you work for Waterloo Fire, they do not go on Kitchener. Call. So you can be on the border, and that could be a fire hall in the Waterloo side. They won't do a Kitchener call. A Kitchener fire. Uh, apparatus has to come from a further station to get to that house because they have these kind of turf wars. Unless, of course, they ask for mutual aid and it's a giant conflagration. But yeah, it's it's um, that the turf wars still they're much more subtle, but they still do exist these days. It's weird. Okay, so you know, actually, sorry to remind me before I get to the conspiracy. Uh, sad, sad news. We we uh, sort of a, a friend of the show, uh, Joseph Steinberg. He was on. Last year, two years ago, uh, doing uh, talking about the um, it was the Roanoke colony in in America, um, talking about uh, you know sort of what happened to that and and uh, he, he unfortunately di- died a, a couple weeks ago quite unexpectedly. Oh, that's awful to hear. I'm sorry to hear that. So yeah, yeah, he just uh, he 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 kind of was in Korea, knew him from Korea, and then moved back to the states and uh, with, with his wife and then I sort of got a Skype message from her saying that you know he died unexpectedly so yeah so I just you know some sad news there but um, yeah so anyways uh, first time I think I have lost somebody uh, uh, guest on Conspiracy Skeptic anyway so sad news over Um, so your favorite conspiracy is oh boy well my (laughs) I, I I kind of like the uh, the um, I mean I'm not going to talk about it today, but okay. I really enjoy those international the ones that that take the most the greatest conspiracy like the greatest number of people required to control yeah. like the Illuminati kind of things. I find them compelling 
uh, on a you know completely irrational storytelling right. kind of way, and completely like they're like I, I don't believe any obviously any truth in them, but but I find that the ways that people can dig themselves into believing that there's this ju- like yeah. great massive conspiracies, those really really I find yeah. fascinating. But but but, but yeah. for the magic of podcasting, you got to pretend your favorite conspiracy is. Oh, of course, <laughs> it's the it's population control by wireless uh, cell phone signals. <laughs> that is my real favorite conspiracy. Cool. Now you are um, you're. Um, you, you you write for Skeptic North, right? The, the blog. I do. I've written for them um, since uh, oh gosh, 2007 maybe. It's been a few years, okay. and then I, I and this year I just started writing for Huffington Post Canada as well. Cool. Okay. But, uh, and are you part of Bad Science Watch Canada Canadian? Yes, indeed. It's like you've read my bio. Yes. I, I'm one of the founders of, uh, along with uh, Jamie Williams out in Vancouver, uh, and Carol Parlow, uh, who's on our board, uh, of uh, a national uh, science advocacy group called Bad Science Watch. Okay. And uh, we were formed to sort of uh, to to interface with government and the media and report on what we f- find to be dubious science. Um, uh, in public policy, and to certain advocate, certainly advocate for better consumer protection uh, uh, legislation, and to fight for good science. Okay. Policy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, because uh, I, I always sometimes think that Toronto skepticism, we we don't do a lot. It's kind of like, oh yeah, uh, I'm gonna go pay my mortgage. Like that's <laughs> you know. And, and so you're the guy who's actually holding down the fort here. <laughs> it's it's difficult. I you know I I kind of envy. I mean, it's Vancouver's gonna you know cheer, and I'll have my other Toronto friends kind of hurt me for this. But I envy Vancouver, really, for their their uh, great grassroots skeptical movements. They have something like three, maybe two or three different skeptics in the pubs that occur in the city proper in Richmond and. Uh, and several other places, they have a, they have. I think CFI has two or three different uh, different um, offices out there. It's it, they're really they really work hard out there. And not that the, the Torontonians don't. I mean, a number of us, you know, that, that uh, blog for Skeptic North uh, certainly do work in the GTA. But we never get together socially. Mm. It's something that's sort of like not allowed or something here. I'm not exactly. quite sure why. Uh, hey, but, you know. Trying to coming, I mean, trying to commute across this city is just. <laughs> mm. I know by cycling, get, leaving my apartment really is really just it's quite difficult. I can't really, I can't really you know. And and you, I think you, I seem to recall you, um, you, um, you gave a talk to like a, a nursing society, an entire nursing society, about alt med or something like that. Or? Oh, it was actually for um, it was for the med school at McMaster. Oh, okay. Um, and that was that was part of a uh, sort of a second year. Um, the med school second year students put together sort of a uh, not an extracurricular day, but they bring in um, uh, uh, specialists from outside the school to talk about whatever topic is that may interest them. And my, I was contacted through um, CAS, uh, the Committee for the Advancement of Scientific Skepticism at CFI, which I also was one of the uh, original members of okay. uh, and co-chaired for a while to go do this talk about alt med. Uh, and I presented a sort of one-hour talk on uh, sort of a roundup uh, of the sort of basic themes in alternative medicine uh, and some idea of how to approach it as, uh, you know, as a healthcare professional and 
kind of talk to your patient about it. Um, but it was uh, it was based actually on uh, I had done a workshop down at uh, TAM um, seven uh, on alternative medicine and uh, with the with all the uh, science based medicine folks. Okay. And so I had contacted them. They had a really good way of sort of partitioning up all the little major themes. And so I used – I talked to Steve Novella, uh, who had done one of the original produ- um, presentations, and I got his permission to sort of use that structure within which to, to talk to them about it. So that was really great. Wow. Now, I, I, as a paramedic, I mean, have you ever responded to a call where you're like – Oh yeah, colloidal silver. That uh, yeah. <laughs> you know that that put him away. Like like yeah, exactly. You know, I did go for a homeopathic overdose one day. No, um, no word of a lie. No word of a lie. So this lady um, oh, <laughs> had had her, her and her daughter were taking homeopathy. They had been prescribed it by a by a naturopath, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess they each had their regimen. Each morning they would she would literally put three or four drops of these of this, this five or six solutions into a glass of water. And she would drink hers, and then her child had her own that she would put four or five drops of whatever other solutions the, 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 the six-year-old had. And I guess what happened was um, the six-year-old had her sort of morning glass of water um, with her, you know, parts per million or parts per billion of calcium and copper and whatever the heck else was in those things. And, uh, and her mom had sort of prepared hers but hadn't drank it. Um, well, the six-year-old, as six-year-olds do, are, are, she was thirsty. And she saw this glass of water on the table, and she drank her mother's homeopathic okay. prep as well. Now, the mom obviously she freaked out. She, she, you know, this was if any other if any other child had taken uh, like their their parents or grandparents' medication, that's a serious mm-hmm. issue, especially in somebody who's that small at six years old. And so the mom was was uh, was you know concerned, and so she called nine one one, and I showed up, and I said, well, "What happened?" And uh, she showed me all the bottles, and I said, "Well." You know, it's not my job really as a paramedic to bring these ideas to my job. Like, I can't sit there and lecture her on homeopathy and why it's it's largely bunk. That's not really my position. But I did say to her, I said, you know, there's not really a lot in here. I don't think your daughter's probably going to be too harmed. I'm happy to take you to the hospital. And her daughter really was just sitting on the chair staring at me and, you know, kind of with that six-year-old kind of smile there's nothing wrong with her at all and she had i said well she drank some water uh and i said there's nothing i mean i looked at all the bottles i looked at all the 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 ingredients and there was really the the dilutions were so high that it was not an issue but it was honest to god i mean i had to go for toast and and everyone was fine everyone came out just i know it was it was it was touch and go there for a moment i said another life save i know i know Uh, she may have to go to the bathroom in about an hour i said she may that may i'd be worried if you were in the car and she has some incontinence issues. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So getting get the actual topic at hand. So so wireless. It sort of seems like like Canadian. A certain branch of Canadians have all gone freaky at once over like wireless. Wireless in schools. Like the head of the Canadian Green Party is like against wireless, and uh, and, and now it's like the former president of Microsoft Canada is coming out about wireless what what the hell's going on yeah that's a great question i you know what i um the history in canada doesn't go back that far um one of the sort of grandparents of the movement um magda havis who's a who's a uh, a phd doctor out of uh, trent university she was starting to write about this i think in the 90s okay and uh, Citizens for Safe Technology, which is sort of the major uh, political group 
um, trying to advocate for less exposure to for everybody for wireless devices, um, has really only been around, I think, for the past five or six years. Um, there, so it's a, it is a rather new phenomenon. Um, however, the 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 idea that wireless technology in the version of a cell phone it may be bad for you. That kind of idea has been around since the 70s, at least. I mean, okay. Motorola, uh, I think, made the first cell phone in 1973. And so there have been several kind of lines of investigation to try to to see if the radiation from cell phones, which is in the microwave band, on the spectrum, okay. uh, in between radio waves and infrared, um, has any biological effect. I mean, it doesn't. it's non-ionizing, meaning it doesn't have the energy to break bonds, in molecules, right. um, chop up your DNA, basically. For example, yeah, like for example, X-rays, right, would uh, certainly have that uh, have that power, and gamma rays and uh, ultraviolet. Um, you know, the certain the skin cancer that's caused by that is certain is because of the DNA damage. Um, but this is the energy from this is less than visible light, right? The, I mean, light has a higher has a higher energy than than the microwave. Okay. Radiation. It is a matter of dosage. Obviously, we have. I mean, most of us have a microwave in our kitchen right. that will heat up food, um, and that's a thousand watt device that will. You know, that's a lot of. Light. If you if you put a thousand watt light bulb in your microwave, you would cook food pretty quickly as well. There's lots of heat that those things throw off. Right. Right. So you know, a thousand watt microwave uh, magnetron uh, or magneton in there is going to um, cook your food. Obviously, the power ratings on cell phones are, you know, one watt uh, or less these days. So we're talking about three, a couple orders of magnitude less. And then wireless devices like Wi-Fi devices, um, we're talking about 0.1 watts from a from a standard home uh, Wi-Fi device. So, so you know, it was a bit implausible, but you know, obviously important to investigate. And um, I think that the the scientific community at large sort of dismissed many of the the claims out of a lack of scientific rigor uh, over the years. But this has so, sort of stuck around. There's been some staunch uh, opponents since the 1970s, and uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, it's really gained a popular appeal um, for several reasons, I think. Uh, but, yeah, it's, in Canada, there, there is a, there's, a, there's more than are taking it national. And uh, the Citizens for Safe Technology... Uh, I say they're BC-based, but Frank Clegg, who's the the former Microsoft head, he actually lives in Oakville, mm-hmm. and they are uh, certainly organizing nationally. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's definitely a strong, a strong. I look at their webpage and I look at the people involved, and uh, yeah, they're they're formidable. Very, I think uh, one of the um, when when um, Elizabeth May, uh, you you alluded to her there at the beginning. Elizabeth May had made some comment about her daughter going to school and Wi-Fi. And it was quite offhand. We called her on it, and okay. um, one of their uh, she backed she backpedaled and went, "Oh well, you know," and hasn't spoken about it since. Okay. Um, because we got to uh, a couple of people who are sort of back room organizers for the Green Party, and they were like, I, "I don't know where this came from," and 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 they said, you know, like basically. These people are very, very motivated. When they corner you at a fundraising dinner, um, it is difficult <laughs> to get out from underneath their passion uh, because they truly believe this is a major medical uh, threat. Right, right. Uh, yeah. so, I was going to say, just Elizabeth May, just so we're clear, she's the, the uh, head of the Canadian Green Party and actually elected to Parliament, the only member of the Green Party elected to Parliament. Indeed. 
Indeed. And what's funny, what's funny as well is the Green Party in Ontario, at least, I don't know about nationally, but the, most of the Ontario candidates are very, very science-friendly. Okay. Um, uh, just for full disclosure, I'm an NDP member. Okay. So I'm not a I'm not a Green Party member, but but when uh, in the past when we've been organizing uh, political kind of campaigns uh, through uh, the CFI that I used to work with, we, they they are all very like a lot of them are scientists, a lot of them are working scientists or engineers, uh, and there tends to be sort of a higher um, percentage that are certainly science friendly and sort of have these kind of ideas uh, be promoted in those circles is kind of curious. I'm not sure. How much of it? How much it pervades the party? But it certainly is perceived to be one of the supporters. I remember Elizabeth May when she she was kind of tweeting about you know how she yeah she's glad she doesn't have wireless in her home and then and then when you looked at when you looked at what she was tweeting from she was tweeting from her BlackBerry and a lot of people were like <laughs> were like you right. know, pound fail. That's right. You know what you're using, right? Yeah. I know it seems well, and, and what's People have, I mean, one of the major things I deal with every day at work, this is like a component of every single call, is anxiety. Whether it's pathological or just a normal physiological response, everybody's got anxiety about the unknown. And medicine, especially, because of the great mechanism of the hospitals and the you know, EMS service and, and specialists and getting a family doctor and, and carting from one specialist to the other. And uh, especially if you have any kind of chronic condi- you know, condition like diabetes, excuse me, or cancer, it requires a lot of um, observation and a lot of interventions in, in the case of cancer. This is a huge mechanism, and it tends to be dehumanizing. As much as people try to avoid that and as much as, you know, healthcare providers try to have as much compassion as they can. They, you know, it's it's a real system, and you can become alienated from it quite quickly. Um, and I think that 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 exists uh, that exists in many different sort of technological areas in the world, or in the, in Canada, like 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 for example, cell phones. Um, you know, human contact is decreasing and, and cell phones and wireless devices seem to be taking the place of that and, and people are craving more, you know, person-to-person contact. But, um, you know, you get – when grandma falls down the stairs or when little Jimmy falls – this is an even more better example. When little Jimmy falls off his bike and hits his head, um, mom and dad are the first people to say, give me a CT scan. Okay. And a CT scan is – Quite a lot of radiation, mm-hmm. of ionizing radiation, right? right. right? And uh, people in those kind of situations are very anxious about it. They want that CT scan without even thinking about all of the radiation you're subjecting your child to. Now, in some cases, it's, it's the, the risks are outweighed a lot by the benef- by the benefits, right? Of finding you know bleeding in the brain or a lesion or something. But you know when. When we talk about the radiation from cell phones, it is—it's not even close right. to the energy. But the same people, you know, who are trying to get rid of all these these devices in their homes and in schools, would probably not think twice about demanding a CT scan for their child. When you know, a CT scan can be upwards of a thousand X-rays, depending on what they're they're uh, they're they're doing. Um, and I, you know, there's a real disconnect between risk and benefit, and in, in identifying. What's a risk and what are the benefits? Um, people are very bad at it uh, when it comes to these very, very large machines of medicine and, and uh, indeed technology. So 
it doesn't surprise me that that you would be tweeting from a BlackBerry and not understand the connection. Yeah. Well, I thought, too, like, Elizabeth May, head of the Green Party, of all people, it's like, what she's saying is, let's get rid of, you know, wireless, and then let's lay copper and fiber optic and knock through... Like, how much carbon are we going to expend, like, rewiring schools? (laughs) You know, whereas you just put one little wireless thing, boom, you're done. Exactly, or digging the copper out of the ground, or, or, or reprocessing it. Like mining, mines are a huge, uh, can be a big pollution source, right? So any time you want to, re- like, if you can reduce that, that's one. That's one way of doing it. I know, but but you know, nobody. I mean, I don't have. There's no mines in Toronto. I don't. I've never been in a mine. Like I have no idea what that means. It's sort of an abstract thing. But there's a wireless device in my home. I've got five or six wireless devices around. These are, these are ubiquitous technologies. So. It, you know that again. People use that availability heuristic. That you know, what, what what's the last thing I saw uh, to make a decision, right, and yeah. all they see is wireless. So I know it's it's a very complex problem. It's been oversimplified time and again by these by the activists who are trying to uh, to scare us about it. You know, I was thinking the other day. I was mostly th- thinking about the. Uh, I mean, that's also a whole other talk. But topic about the um, uh, like wind power, which I think even the Green Party, <laughs> they have issues with wind power as it is, you know, it yeah. being employed in Ontario. But, um, uh, but um, you, you know, like, you know, it's, um, you know, it's like, there's really Dr. Novella just sort of likes to point out that, you know, that, you know, that people will just suddenly start to notice they've got the aches and pains and and uh and uh and then sort of associate with the wind but but it also seems to occur to me that that you know of all the people say in Ontario there's going to be people who you know the day they just happen to put a, a wireless device in their house is the day they have a medical problem yeah. you know? and you know they're immediately going to make that connection right so so it's it's uh you know I mean, there's, there's various ways to explain it, but that was sort of, you know, uh, another thing I sort of realized that, you know, I bet, yeah, there are just some people that are just going to sort of, the moment you put a a, a, a cable box outside their house or a you know, high-tension uh, power line or a windmill, you know, that there's going to be a certain percentage of people that just, you know, within a week or some loose definition are going to have a real health problem in that. Absolutely. No, that law of large numbers. I mean, cell phone towers are everywhere. You can't escape them. And so, you know, if you're going to have some early onset arthritis or just have normal joint pain or pain, aches and pains, headaches, anxiety, sleeping problems. I mean, I, I, everyone I know has sleeping problems. Nobody I know sleeps. Like between coffee, staying up, stress, the, our lifestyle – Sleeping problems are endemic <laughs> to our society. Not to mention anxiety. Like I said, everyone I everyone I see inter- intersecting with the interfacing with the medical community has some sort of anxiety as a part of their uh, part of their things, as far as a, a part of their their sort of life. And so, people want something to blame, and they see that cell tower go up. They go, "Aha! It must be that." Forgetting that there's 12 other things. You know, maybe you should quit smoking, or maybe you should. Yeah. Uh, um, Get eight hours of sleep per night. I always found it funny when we were when this first came out with the the Simco, um, the Simco Committee for Safe Schools. I forget what the name of it was out, out there in Simco when that whole Wi-Fi wireless thing came up in Simco, uh, just north of Toronto. Um, we, I mean, people were saying, "Oh, my child, my my child, my my ten-year-old is coming home complaining of headaches. And he doesn't want to go to school and he can't concentrate and he's having trouble sleeping." 
And uh, you're like, when does this happen? Oh, it's every day he's at school. But it doesn't happen when on the weekends. Yeah. Isn't that funny? On the weekends, he's fine. He sleeps, he sleeps in, he's a happy guy, and then he goes to school and he's feeling awful. Well, you know, I felt bad. <laughs> I didn't want to go to school when I was a kid, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like these are these are just problems with kids. I mean, I, mean, I have friends who have got three kids and they run around all week, ballet, drums, uh, you know, uh, on Saturdays it's swimming lessons and karate and dance and musical theater. Like there's – kids are really, really, really – programmed throughout the week. They're very, very busy. I'm not surprised they've got sleeping problems and fatigue and and uh, and headaches and you know nausea. Um, it's just the attribution. And then at Bad Science Watch, we put out a paper at the beginning of the year about this Wi-Fi issue. And one of the things we really wanted to stress, um, and this is in our this is in our values charter in our mission statement. One of the things we really wanted to stress is that we don't blame anybody. Any of the patients or any of the people who are of the public who are worried about this, we don't blame them for having these symptoms, right? We don't we don't disbelieve when someone says I have electrohypersensitivity, and my light and their lives have become, you know, this this unlivable cage that they because the the, the the electromagnetic fields surround them and they can't get away from it. That I don't doubt that they are they are experiencing this and that their life their activities of daily living has been affected. Um, what we challenge is the attribution of the cause, and that is a, a product of the promotion of these larger companies and 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 fringe scientists uh, who are promoting these effects. Right, that is the problem. It's the fact that you've been told that it's not any number of things that could be going on. Ignore all that. It's actually in electro electromagnetic fields, yeah. uh, and that's the real. I think that's the real danger to society to mislead people, right? Yeah. Now this this whole electromagnetic thing seemed to quiet down until a few weeks ago, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a couple months now. Um, the, the, yeah, the former president of Microsoft Canada uh, sort of piped up about it, sort of jumped into the fray. Is, is that kind of a fair assessment, or? I think so. I'm not. I I think that Frank Frank Clegg, which is his name, has been involved in Citizens for Safe Technology. He's he's the chair of the board. Okay. Uh, he's been involved for a while. They they do have. When you look at the people who are the main kind of organizers, they've got quite. Um, you know, there's business people. There's people who are uh, who are used to. Um, talking to the media, who are making stories, who are you know running campaigns and project managing. It's not just some sort of little fly-by-night organization. And so they try, they have tried um, and been successful in some accounts of trying to get the media to pay attention to them. So um, I can't. I, I I was trying to dig in to find out what uh, Mr. Clegg's connection is, um, other than his uh, Oakville fight uh, to get. A cell phone tower off of one of the fire halls. They wanted to install it in there, and I can't like like I don't think that he is electrosensitive. Okay. I or he's claiming that. I don't think that like there's no indication in any of the things I've seen that his family is. It's quite possible that he has a family member that that claims to have uh, EHS, what we call IEIEMF, which is a ridiculous. <laughs> but it stands for idiopathic. Uh, 
idiopathic environmental intolerance attributed to electromagnetic fields. So it, it says, yes, you've got some sort of strange intolerance, and then you're saying it's electromagnetic fields, but we don't, you know, we don't think that's the case. But uh, so I think you may have a family member that might be that way, but I, but I have no evidence of that at all. Okay. What's very clear is the other people who are involved in C4ST definitely do have uh, family members or are themselves claiming to suffer from EHS. So I don't know what his I don't know what his hook is. I do know that he used to be uh, on the board of the uh, Information Technology Association of Canada, which which is promoting wireless technology. Um, and that was, he hasn't been on that board for a while. He was there in the early 2000s. Uh, I'm not sure when he left, but he's not a member now. Um, so he comes out of that community. Uh, maybe he's seen something we don't. I don't, right, I don't right. think so. Which is sort of, uh, you know, kind of the scary thing is because, you know, all that you have to say, a, a, you know, be able to say, well, he's the former, you know, president of Microsoft Canada. And so he must have sort of deep knowledge into these things. And, and, uh, and and therefore, let's listen to him. You know that. that mm-hmm. kind of, yeah. oh, I know, and, and he has like he's he's got a bachelor of mathematics from Waterloo. Uh, he's not a PhD level researcher. He's a businessman, right, basically. Right. And uh, has I mean he does obviously he's got some. Uh, he's not a he's not just a businessman. He's got his hand on the technical side. But you know what really <laughs> what's really interesting is they make all these claims about the conspiracy, uh, which is which is you know quite deep. And uh, and yet they don't offer any proof. Like he hasn't said, "Well, I was at Microsoft Canada. Here's the man, the <laughs> manifesto that was given to us by the head office down there in Silicon Valley to say we must promote wireless devices despite what we know to be true that they are perfect. right." It, yeah, it's like uh, what was it that one NASA astronaut uh, who. Uh, had some noetic science institute or something, but he, uh, you know, he, he sort of claims that you know NASA knows about UFOs and and stuff, and 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 he's always you know always alluding to people at NASA who know about this. But you would think, as an astronaut, <laughs> he could name names, you know? <laughs> right, right? But even he can't, right? You know, right? Yeah. Well, he's under their thumb, right? He's they'd probably just yeah. dis- disappear him if he said anything. Yeah. Uh, I know, I know. It's really, it's frustrating. I mean, when I was reading, I had, uh, I, I think I told you earlier, I had gone through Deva, um, Deborah Davis, Dr. Deborah Davis's book, Disconnect, which is sort of the, um, which is the manifesto for the conspiracy. Um, and there's not one citation in the entire book. She has done interviews, <laughs> which she has somehow transcribed, but there's no... Uh, not even the scientific studies has she cited. I mean, you can guess them. You can go, well, this is a study that the study that took place in Denmark, and they, you know, looked at cell phone usage, and it took up 420,000 people. You can probably Google all of those terms and find out what it is. But the smaller studies of the claims of replication, none of it has. There's not one endnote, not one footnote, not not a parentheses, nothing. And uh, I mean, it is a popular book, but if you're really making this argument. Um, the, show us the evidence that there's a conspiracy, right? She alludes to it many times. She tries to draw in big tobacco and uh, and what is an obvious conspiracy. I mean, I, I don't know if you've spoken about Naomi Restes and Eric Connolly's um, Merchants of Doubt, but there, if you want a conspiracy, there's a conspiracy, right? There, We've got the paper trail. We've got paychecks. We've got, you know, think tanks. Um, big tobacco, acid rain, ozone layer, you know, climate change. This is these are the this is where the the actual conspiracy was taking place to confuse the public. And Orestes and Conway have made a book that is 
chock full of citations. Right? Like it takes just as much time to read the book as it is to go through all of their evidence um, for their for their conspiracy. And so it's a much more believable text than right, right. you know these kind of mudslinging or in these wink and a nudge. Right, yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. Sort of like, you know, what would what would prove the conspiracy to you, or make you think that the conspiracy is likely? Yeah, that 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 kind that kind of that kind of evidence, right? Like, you know, memos and right, yeah, checks being written by people and, and things like that, that. That there is a paper trail out there, unless it's the ultimate conspiracy. You know, there 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 is a paper trail out there. Absolutely. One, one of the things that, like, I'll give you an example. They, there was this group set up by the WHO um, called, I'm just going to get the, the name, I want to get the name right. Oh, ICNIRP, uh, which is called the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection. Okay. And it's run by this guy named Rapacoli. And uh, now, it, her link, her claim that this, this committee was biased was that it was partially funded by a hospital in Australia that got its funding from the wireless uh, industry. So she's got three connections there, the wireless industry giving money to the hospital to give money to the ICNIRP. Okay. Now, if that's true, I mean, you think, well, that's kind of a conflict. I mean, there's no evidence that they actually did anything, like, conspired to fix evidence. But... Maybe you'd like to tell us who the wireless industry types who gave the money to what hospital. Um, she, I don't think she names the hospital, and she doesn't name the wireless industry. Key, like it's just a, it's just a conspiracy that she throws out there. That is not. There's no proof. Right. Uh, it may very well be true, and you know, the big business kind of conspiracy is one that's you know believable. It's happened in the past, so why not now? But there's a, there's no she doesn't actually give you any evidence, <laughs> right? And. It's that kind of uh, side, sideways kind of you know trench coat and a glance that she uses throughout the entire book, and it's very frustrating because if there is a conspiracy. Right. I want to know what the proof is. Now, one of the names you see, I mean, not one of the names. Uh, well, uh, the, coming back to a previous conversation we had offline, was that Magda Magda Havis. She's she's like a professor at a university. It was in. in um, Peter, Peterborough, Trent, Trent, right? That's and right. we were looking at her publication record and on on her university site, and about half of her articles are um, articles she's written for a local newspaper, like the Peterborough Examiner. Or something. Right? Yeah, with the Winter Standard or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know that's you know, I, and if you look at her, uh, what's really sad is you look at her resume, and she came out. I think she was uh, did her postgrad at U of T. Uh, she has a legitimate scientific training, and uh, she did a lot of research into acid rain back in the late uh, – in the early 90s, late 80s. And and what's really telling um, – and I could pull up her uh, – her, here, I have her CV right here. It's, it just happens to be on my computer. Um, if you pull up her CV, there's all this uh, sort of legitimate um, research that she's published on acid rain and the effects on forests and acidification of lakes and everything else. And then at some point – um, things go sideways. Um, she stops publis- pub- publishing on her specialty, which is chemical um, pollution, and opens up the you know Pandora's box of okay. electromagnetic radiation. 
and has since then gone down this rabbit hole. I just watched a video tonight that no no word of a lie. Like we didn't think it would get very like she's a she's a tenured professor. You'd think that she has some sort of standard. Apparently not. Uh, there is a video, and I can send you the link, okay. uh, called um, Dr. Magda Havis, PhD, Conspiracy Theory, Population Control, and Microwave Radiation. And she breaks down. She says, what if the world is getting too big and there's some sort of elite group that wants to limit the population? What would they do to limit the population? Well, of course, they would introduce the technology as ubiquitous as cellular microphone emitters and she goes down the entire list of you know the uh, what what do you what do you do to control population well you have to get to the egg and the sperm well we don't know about the eggs so much but we know that sperm is damaged by cell phones which is in fact not borne out by the evidence as a side note so we've got the sperm is is is, is affected by uh radiation so there we have one form of population control then we've got uh of course, we want to get to the children first. We put Wi-Fi in all the schools, right? <laughs> uh, and so we've got Wi-Fi in all so we're exposing all them. Now we'll get to the babies. So we use a baby monitor, decked, a decked baby monitor, which is, a, is a, like, a, like a cordless phone technology. And we put the baby monitor beside the baby emitting, and we put the baby receiver on mama's hip. So now we're exposing the mother and the baby. Uh, and then she goes into this kind of convoluted, we're weeding out like an evolutionary argument about weeding out the sensitive individuals, so only the non sensitive can live uh, and then we put cell phone like it's it is uh, it's delivered in a very matter of fact kind of tone but it is crazy town right but uh, but apparently it's what the conspiracy wants to thin out the white suburban people like those are the people we got to get rid of the white <laughs> suburban people <laughs> there's too many white suburban people <laughs> Forget it. Forget that. I mean, I work in suburbia, and I tell you that. I mean, Markham. That it's a very diverse population up there. Let me just put it that way, and uh, which I love. And uh, it's not that. I don't know. It's very strange. It's a. It's a. I, I would. I would suggest everyone go watch it because it immediately puts Magda Havis in the context that we should be looking at her, which is some sort of, uh, you know, crank who's spiraling down into this. Um, you know, maelstrom of, of of fear and doubt of the entire world. And it really is just, it's, it's incredible. I mean, she's gotten to the point now. We watched um, Diane Souza, who's a great volunteer at uh, Bad Science Watch, and she also she blogs for Skeptic North. She showed me this video where uh, Dr. Havis, who is, a tr- I mean, she's, Chemistry, right? She's been trained in chemistry. She knows lab techniques, and she she should know how to set up an experiment. And uh, but instead of doing that, she's at her home exposing herself to some sort of cell phone, drawing, taking her blood, and then doing live cell analysis, which is a which is a keyword for you know quackery, um, and looking at the blood before and after she exposes herself to some sort of cellular radiation. And makes a claim that the blood is all kind of coagulated and clotted, after, which is what blood does if you let it sit there, um, after she's exposed herself. It, it, like she's at home poking herself and looking through a microscope. But this is, doesn't she have a lab at school? Like the Trent University is a pretty big university. Right. They've got a very, very you know, good tradition, I'm sure, of science. And uh, they must have a lab where she can actually do a controlled experiment. But no, she's got to do it in her own home. 
it doesn't exactly sound like she's she's blinded herself. No, no, she knows. She knows. Yeah, there's everything wrong with that experiment, right? She's it's a invalid. The test is invalid. The exposure is invalid. The conclusion is invalid. There's no, there's a sample of one, right? There's no statistics, and it's on YouTube, which is yeah. of course, you know, the yeah. uh, the choice for most high uh, order scientific discourse is YouTube. Yeah, didn't she do some cracked up experiment with like EKGs or something? And yeah, there was actually a great takedown done by uh, uh, Lauren Trottier, who is sort of the devil incarnate to these people. Mm. Um, He's like an electrical engineer. Or something. Yeah, and he and he runs a company uh, in Montreal. I forget the name of it, but he runs. A, he's a, he's the head of a company there that does wireless tech uh, and 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 other um, uh, devices, but. Harvey Kofsky, who uh, Dr. Harvey Kofsky is one of his partners, and uh, I, I had a bit of a nerdgasm, uh, a very small one, but it was a nerdgasm nonetheless, because Harvey Kofsky was one of the developers of the ear, um, and this is going to be totally meaningless to everybody else, but he, he was one of the developers of the patent for the ear uh, uh, SpO2 probe in the 1970s, and SpO2 measures blood oxygen levels, and it's something that we use in the hospital every day. Oh, okay. And uh, he was one of the guys who sort of developed this. Anyways, I, I had a big talk with him, and he had looked at this study by Dr. Havis. And basically, she took she took a device that's meant to monitor athletes' heart rates, okay. uh, which is like a strap, which is a band that you put around your body, and, you, and you've got a receiver and a transmitter, and it measures the heart rate. It wasn't an EKG machine. Oh, okay. First of all, which is her first mistake. Uh, because if someone's having a f- rapid heartbeat, I want to know what the rhythm is, because that tells you where the focus of the pacemaker is in the heart, whether it's in the ventricles, in the bottom part of the heart, or in the top part of the heart. It tells you where, you know, the key. It, 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 you can narrow down the point of sensitivity in the heart with an EKG machine. It can be very precise. But she didn't use that. She used as a heart rate monitor, which measured heart rate. Um, and and Dr. Kofsky was able, I believe he's a doctor. He might just be an engineer, but I believe he's a doctor. Anyways, uh, uh, Kofsky managed to replicate the effect that Dr. Havis was having um, by exposing the transmitter to uh, – sorry, exposing the heart monitor to a transmitter in his computer. Um, It was picking up um, 60 hertz or whatever from his computer, and it was artifact. And so they would turn on this thing. There was some sort of device to expose them uh, that was an electrical device – uh, like a phone or something, and it was it was interfering with this heart rate monitor. And what was really telling is that the heart rate jumped from whatever their normal heart rate was, 60, 70 beats per minute, and it went to 120 beats per minute. Well, 120 beats per minute is twice 60 hertz. So I find it, you know, that would that would clue me into the fact that this is some sort of artifact, first of all. Um, and if it was 120 and it was a rapid heartbeat, um, you know, I'd be worried that it would be something really, really bad, like ventricular uh, ventricular tachycardia, which is quite um, which is quite dangerous. And the fact that she was exposing these patients to a dangerous arrhythmia has a whole other if well, that's true yeah, ethical component. Ethical, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was that problem with the actual device. But the other thing was, um, which was very telling in the in the discussion portion of the paper, if I recall correctly, is she said, you know, we had. We had two groups of people. We had people who thought they were uh, electrosensitive, and we and we had people who didn't think they were electrosensitive. Um, and as it turns out, those two people wasn't predictive at all of who actually was electrosensitive. 
So there was a random distribution of people who claimed to be electrosensitive and not electrosensitive in the actual final people who showed an effect from exposure. So their belief had nothing to do with whether or not they could elicit this effect. So it begs the question of, were they really electrosensitive anyways? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she glosses over that and says, anyways, so the effect is real. And you think, well, there's like 18 reasons why it's not real. Um, and it was, and of course it's published in a journal uh, that it was a vanity publishing journal in Europe um, that was basically set up by her buddy. And I forget the guy's name. Maybe it might have been Rapacoli. Um, it might not have been, though, um, who runs this journal. And, and uh, like, everything about the paper was just it's just bad science. Like, she should know better as with her scientific training. She certainly has more scientific training than I do. Right. Um, and I just wonder why she's so, like, her belief is so strong in the, in the uh, existence of this phenomenon wow. that, you know, no, nothing will dissuade her from 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 that fact. So uh, it really is quite. It's disappointing to see somebody in her position promoting these ideas. What did um, former or conspiracy skeptic, uh, my frequent guest uh, Stuart Robbins, uh, astronomer royale of a conspiracy skeptic, he uh, his own, his own podcast. He did a really good thing about. Um, you know, when you're kind of using scientific equipment to try and test something, is the the huge amount of work you have to sort of do just to sort of establish like kind of like a baseline, test it against this, test it against that, test it against this, and 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 he's like like that's you know that's what science is. It's like ninety percent of what scientists do is are just calibrating their equipment, right. and and you know and she has not done any of that, right? You know, no, no, I found that. I mean, I I've uh, I'm just. I came out of theater. Let me just back up for a second. I was in theater for 20 years as a lighting designer, uh, and I left the business because of, uh, you know, I wanted to grow and I wanted to do new things, and I went into uh, paramedicine because the training was quick and I was very interested in it. So now I'm just going back to school to get my undergrad in science, getting a Bachelor of Science from U of T in physiology, which is what I'm working on right now. And uh, one of the most frustrating things about doing chemistry, uh, first year chemistry, was you would work hard. I mean, what you would do what you think was a very good job of trying to get a reaction to complete with a certain, you know, with a high degree of uh, yield, right? So you think, ah, oh, 80, 90% is pretty good. And you'd run the, run the, run the reaction, you'd get like 50, 60%. Uh, all, the results were always really, really Low and the first time this happened to me, I thought, "What the heck did I do wrong? This is this is awful. Like I must be the most terrible chemist ever to have lived." And everyone was like, "What are you talking about? That's what you're expected to get is 65 percent or 60 percent because of all the stuff that you can't control: dirt, the atmosphere, pressure, ocean, like like atmospheric pressure, um, humidity, like all these things." Uh, that you have to control to get a really good, you know, really good reaction that goes through the completion that, uh, with a really high yield. You have to be, you have to spend a lot of time getting that right. And I thought, oh, right. Um, I, 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 I knew a guy who was working as a food chemist at, um, oh, sorry, not a food chemist. He was working in a lab at UT doing his postgrad on uh, biosensors or, or making, you know, nano 
dots or something, okay. or some sort of sensor. Anyways, he's trying to reproduce what some other, um, you know, uh, some other uh, chemist had done before him, some other postgraduate had done before him, using his notes. And he couldn't replicate the reaction, whatever the reaction was. He just couldn't make it work. And um, he's talking to friends of his in, in the food chemistry department. They said, you know, uh, try to use a vessel that has, that's a bit dirty. He said, what do you mean? He said, ah, sometimes there's some iron in there or some other kind of, you know, dirt. And it just, who knows why, but it just makes it work, you know. And that kind of randomness and that kind of, uh, the, like the smallest effect or the, the smallest smudge or, you know, schmutz that can have that big an effect on your reaction makes the whole process to me to be a bit um, – like black magic, like some sort of mystery. Um, and to have something like Dr. Havis, you know, hook up what is, you know, an off-the-shelf heart monitor for athletes and expect to prove an effect that has not been proven to, to, be, to exist in the past, I think it's just naive. And I, I don't know why – I don't know why – I want to understand why she thinks it's good science. But I have a feeling it's because her ideology has taken over her entire. Uh, this conspiracy theory video just tells it, right? Like she's just a complete. She completely believes it. But now, I mean, but the real scientists are the. Uh, the you see this group mentioned at that time, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. Like they, they sound legit. Have you heard about these guys? Oh yeah, they were quoted by Clegg and and the guys in the CTV uh, news uh, news thing that came up a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, they're especially – it just goes to show you that this is not an unusual phenomenon. I mean they were claiming something like 30% of the population may have nonspecific effects of EHS. Okay. 30%. A third, one in three of us is feeling the effects of wireless – I'm not sure where they got that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that evidence. Uh, and something like 6% of the population is EHS. They, they estimate is actually EHS sensitive or electrosensitive. Um, yeah, they're um, they're sort of notorious for having bad uh, scientific, um, uh, like non-evidence-based theories. Uh, they've been called that several times by Science Based Medicine and and uh, Dr. Novella and his crew down there. Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of at least according to the wiki page that they're they're not recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties. They're just yeah kind of, yeah yeah they're just kind of like. A loose band of you know. <laughs> a ragtag outfit of yeah. rebels. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's like you know, like you sometimes see these political action committees out of the states, and they've got these you know Americans for you know prosperity. They've got these really highfalutin sounding names, and then it's just like, oh, you know, they were just made up yesterday. They filled out a form, and you know. yeah, yeah, that's right. They got their their five hundred one c yeah, um, you know, nonprofit. Uh, what's 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 even more worrying, though, and this is something that um, Dr. Rob Tarswell, one of our science advisors, brought up as well, is it's very interesting that the there is a uh, connection um, between what is now called IEI EMF, so idiopathic environmental insensitivity, or um, idiopathic environmental sensitivity, uh, 
I'm not even saying it right. I can't even remember. Uh, anyways, it's EMF and what's called multiple chemical sensitivity. Okay. So this was all the rage in the 90s. Yes, and yes. And there were, there were several centers that were trying to, to treat people with multiple chemical sensitivity, and they had all the same symptoms. So um, Dr. Havis goes down the anxiety and sleeping problems and fatigue and joint pain, headaches, dizziness, nausea, depression short-term memory loss, skin problems, ringing in the ears. Um, and all, most of these effects were also, uh, if you look at the effects of multiple chemical sensitivity, they were the same symptom pattern. And uh, MCS has, has since fallen out of favor. And what's really interesting is as it fell out of favor, um, electrohypersensitivity sort of came into favor. Um, and so there's like this shifting wave of these, the symptomology that people are trying to find uh, evidence uh, of, yeah, or, or, or a cause of. Right. Um, and what's even more telling is that out of Women's College Hospital here in Toronto, there is actually a center that's run by the hospital and staffed by hospital physicians and nurses that deals with environmental medicine. Uh, and Dr. Havis is, a, is a, uh, a, uh, an advisor to the physician's no, no, great. And they treat people with MCS and EHS and all these other acronyms, um, and they are actually treating them. I'm not sure how they're treating them. One of the one of the things we found out in our paper is that the the one thing that does seem to work is cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah, yeah. Right, which is a way of dealing with your symptoms. It's a way of uh, through your own um, uh, daily um, routines and thought patterns and everything else, being able to cope. Um, and it seems to work very well um, for many people. Um, but then the problem with that is you have that, what that says is, uh, and you don't have to be a dummy, or you don't have to be a really smart guy to get this, uh, is it says that it's all in your head. Right, right. And no one wants to hear that. No, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a really delicate, it's like Morgellons disease, right? Morgellons disease is this, is this weird um, uh, it, uh, parasitosis, uh, parasitosis, parasitosis. Uh, it's called delusional parasitosis, where you feel like there's things crawling in your skin, and, you, and then people they, they scratch themselves and they find little threads. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah you've probably it before. Yeah. But but um, you can't tell somebody with Morgellons that they're that this isn't real. Right. <laughs> yes. Like you can't get them the help they need to deal with this problem because to get the help they need to deal with the problem, they have to accept that what they're feeling is an illusion, is a, is, a, is a manifestation of their belief instead of a, a physiological manifestation. And the same thing exists with, uh, with EHS. You, you, people are, are, are just convinced this is the problem. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever stayed, have you ever been a patient in a nice hospital? A really nice hospital? Never. Okay. Because when mean, I, oh, I was going to say, when I, when I was in Seattle, I was, I mean, it was sort of like um outpatient thing but I had to be there like a day and I had like this gold plated dot com health insurance and I had to go in for like a lung biopsy and it was kind of an I got a private room and I got to take the day off of work and nurses come in and they feed me and they talk to me and I, yeah, I don't end up dying of cancer so but that's good yeah but it's like it was simply the most relaxing day I have ever had because it's like the one – because, you know, if you're at a hotel, you're paying for that, right? Or if, you know, your girlfriend or your wife is doing something for you, there's still that like I'm putting somebody out, you know? But right. but if you're just like the nurses, 
they're paid to do that, right? And 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 my insurance is paying for this. And it's almost like everybody in the country should like one or two days every few years should just have that kind of <laughs> little <laughs> mental health kind of we're paying for it. You you cannot be fired for taking that day off of work. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's uh I remember there was a um Last year's conference for the Canadian Medical Association, I believe, was up in the Yukon. It was in Yellowknife. And it was not – it may have been a year ago. And uh, the keynote by the CMA president-elect uh, that year was from a physician in Yellowknife. And she uh, had been elected, and that's why they had the – I think that's why they had the conference up there. And she told a story about uh, her father who was sick. And, uh, I mean, she's a physician. She works in a hospital. She works in uh, – in the medicine floor or, or in neuro or something, and her dad was in a different part of the hospital. And so she went down there, and he was quite ill. And uh, uh, she went to visit him and uh, make sure everything was going okay. And she was a physician. She knows the system. <laughs> and the – I mean, you preach about patient-centered care, um, and it's something you believe you want to give, as a healthcare provider, right? The patient is number one. Even though everyone goes, well, you know, I've got more information than you. There are experts who know about your disease. And so they may think your decision is kind of strange if you want to do something that's not really what is it prescribed in the treatment plan. Um, but, you know, you want, to, you want to buy into that fact that the patient is, it's, the, the patient is number one and, and they have to be an equal partner in their cure. But when you get to these, but when you have very complex care or when you have really sick people, um, people just take over, like like physicians and nurses and and RTs and and all the other kind of hospital staff. They they just want to get you well and they want to do their job and they want to do it to the best of their ability and, and they and they want to do it to a technical, uh, high technical level. But they forget the person. And so she went down to the hospital and she told the story about how it wasn't patient centered care. She realized that being on the other side of the gurney, as it were, uh, to quote to quote white white coat black art. Um, was a different experience, and it was alienating, and it was not, uh, it wasn't enjoyable. And I mean, not that it's meant to be enjoyable, but it certainly, certainly shouldn't be more stressful. Like right. the environment, you'd think in a healing environment, shouldn't be more stressful. And I think that this is a major problem. It's manifesting itself uh, in the rise of the alternative medicine community, and it's manifesting itself in self-diagnosis and uh, a kind of um, rebellion against orthodoxy um, that says, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to tell me this is all in my head, quote-unquote, that it's psychogenic. Because uh, in the past, when you've called it psychogenic, you've just patted me on the head. Like, you know, the sort of paternalistic medicine in the past right, yes. has not done us any favors. And, and so now we've got the problem with, with patient-centered groups who are giving the community that people are looking for, um, that are giving um, these sufferers of these vague but real and debilitating symptoms what they want, validation, you know, and uh, somebody tell them that they're right, that what they believe is true, that, there is, that the world isn't, isn't chaotic, that there is an answer to all of your questions. Um, and that's something that medicine 
has stopped doing for some very good reasons. We don't want to tell people lies, right? That's considered unethical or unethical. Uh, but this is what we get. And because people have ignored it for so long, now this whole monster has built up of, of uh, you know, external, this external self-care, patient-centered model that said, you know what, if you're not going to be patient-centered, then we'll just be patient. We're just going to center it on ourselves anyways. And then you get... What, we've, what we're talking about here, this massive conspiracy against uh, to sort of keep people sick and to call the population and yeah. you know like whoa, whoa, where did that come from? Well, that's that's the alienation, and that's the, those are the those are the those are the symptoms of that alienation. That's the only possible explanation, right? It's just not because everybody just kind of does their own little thing, and and and, and in the aggregate. It does produce this alienating environment, right? Where, mm-hmm. yeah. Now I remember when they first introduced at grocery stores laser scanners. Right. My, my uncle refused to buy groceries that use a laser scanner because he was convinced that the lasers were going to irradiate his food with radiation and it was going to poison him. Right. And he doesn't care about that anymore. But and and, and I remember in the eighties too. It's like the big thing was. Uh, the high-tension power lines. People were convinced living next to... I think because, you know, people were now expanding out into the burbs, right? Where before there was just nothing out there, and that's where they put the power lines. Right. And now people are moving to the power lines, and for the first time noticing, fuck, look at that. Yeah. You know, and, and ascribing all kinds of health problems. And, and you know, they investigated that six ways a Sunday, and... No one really worries about that anymore, but now then it became, as you were saying, the environmental sensitivity, and it's the wireless, and, and it just seems like every time we introduce a new technology or, or people notice something new in their environment that that all of the same parcel of it's like Dr. Novell likes to call it nonspecific health problems, the same parcel of nonspecific health problems gets attributed to the to, to the new technology. What would what would you say about that? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I think I think there's a baseline I think there's a baseline of suffering that we all experience. Whether it's chronic pain, whether it's anxiety, which I think is ubiquitous, um, sleeping problems, fatigue. Um, I think there's a baseline for suffering that once you fixed everything else, once people aren't dying of polio <laughs> yeah. or measles, like we fixed that problem, despite what the anti-vaccine movement wants to wants to tell us, um, once we've largely made childhood cancer survivable, which is incredible, um, that's the highest. I think uh, I could be wrong. I'm not a cancer doctor, but I but I believe that 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 we've had the greatest success over the past 50 years in childhood cancers. Once people are living longer because we have better nutrition and better um, uh, better health care, um, what's left? Well, this is baseline of suffering. And because as society says, you deserve to be X, and we believe, I mean, I want to believe that I deserve to be healthy, anything that comes up that is not uh, pain-free perfection is considered a pathology. Hmm. Um, we look at depression. Depression, I mean, again, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but um, minor depression seems to be fairly ubiquitous. Just like, I mean, I've had a, I've had a panic attack before. 
Uh, it's not chronic. It doesn't affect my life now, but I've certainly had anxiety in the past. I, I'm, I do lots of things to manage my anxiety today so I don't have to be anxious. Um, it's something I can deal with. Others can't deal with it, and it becomes – it affects their life. Um, the, the minor depression, I think, is the same way. I think that we all – like most of us suffer from a depressive episode sometime in our life. It is part of life. But when we live in a society that says you deserve not to be sick and you deserve not to have depression and here's a pill to fix it or um, you know, you're depressed, therefore you're sick rather than you're just going through something and you'll get over it. Most people, some people have major depression and that's pathology and we have to help people get through that. But these relative this baseline of suffering that, you know, when you're worried about all the big major things that we had 50 or 100 years ago, when all that stuff's gone, now what do we deal with? We have this baseline. And I think that that is what's going on. And, um, well, I agree with you. I think there's a technophobia. I mean, I think that this happened with the telephone, certainly happened with the, with the radio. The microwave, uh, as we're the saying. The microwave, I <laughs> the know. The television, right? Oh, God, the television. The, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rot your brain, right? And uh, it'll make you blind if you stare at it all day. Uh, we got that when I, when I was a kid all the time. Irradiated food, right? Let's kill all the bacteria. Well, <clears throat> they didn't believe that. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just electromagnetic radiation. When it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't stick around in the food. But because of the nuclear age and the threat of, you know, um, the actual use of nuclear bombs in the 1940s <clears throat> on people and, and the threat of nuclear war throughout the 50s and 60s, you know, people are scared of radiation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I would be scared too. Uh, and, uh, and certainly now with the other issues, with you know, people are still scared of radiation, quite rightly, excuse me. But, yeah. No, no, I was just going to say that, that, like, I think that this is, I think that you're exactly right. There's a technophobia, but... I think this is baseline suffering that people think they should not have to suffer from. One thing I said I just wanted to cover before we kind of maybe wrap up is you were talking about um, the CTV, right? They did a story about this. And you were actually uh, – you talked to a CTV reporter. You were kind of the, the, the token skeptic or something, and, and that didn't quite have the outcome you thought it did? No, I had spoken – I guess uh, – okay, so, so, so just to back up a bit, there's this – program in Peel called Bring Your Own Device in the Peel Regional School Board outside of Toronto in Mississauga. And so they set up wireless uh, uh, networks in the school and they're encouraging um, kids to bring their wireless devices to school so they can integrate them into the into the curriculum. And now, however you feel about that, I had, a, uh, <laughs> I had an argument with my, my paramedic partner today about whether or not that's a good thing to have these devices in the classroom. But that's a, that's a separate issue. It's just about <laughs> having the devices themselves, having a network themselves. And, uh, and there were four people, four protesters. I, um, once we raised a, a stink about this, I, the Peel PR people got in touch with me through Twitter. Uh, both the director of PR and, and, uh, and, and another representative, and they said, you know what, there were four people there. One of them was Frank Clegg. One of them was uh, Wendy, who the walk for Wendy, I forget her last name, I'm sorry, uh, who is an EHS sufferer. And there were two other people from Oakville, four people protesting at one school. But because it's Frank Clegg mm-hmm. and because they put out this scary pamphlet that had, you know, quite erroneous but frightening, you know, pictures on it of, of people radiating children's brains... Um, you know, it was frightening. So CTV, Pauline, Pauline Chan, the, the health reporter at the local CTV affiliate, does a story. Um, I guess she was, she, uh, she was working on the story. It sort of came up at the last minute. She asked the National Health, one of the producers of the National Health Desk, 
to do some research. And she got a hold of me through Bad Science Watch. And uh, she said, I'm looking for an expert. I said, well, okay, you're looking for an expert. So you want to talk to a physician or a, or a PhD, somebody who is an expert in this that can say this is, this is BS. Uh, let me find somebody for you. So I did some digging. I gave her a couple names. And I said, if worse comes to worse, you know, I'm certainly around. I was around that day. I could certainly do something on camera. I'm in town. And uh, I thought, well, I didn't hear back from her. I had sent her another name about an hour later. And this was probably in the morning. And then uh, when they aired the, the program, all they had was Mr. Clegg. They, they did a streeter with one of the parents from the school who said, oh, it might be a problem. I want my child to be safe, which is typical. <laughs> like, of course, everyone wants their child to be safe. And they did another streeter um, uh which was apparently random, but it was actually Wendy, this woman, Wendy, again, there's two Wendy's that work for us, for us and I forget both of the last names, who is the woman who's, who's one of the organizers, but she's not, so she's not a parent at the school, she's one of the organizers, but they just treated her to make it look like she was one of the parents uh, who has electro-hypersensitivity, and, or claims to have electro-hypersensitivity, and, uh, and then they put up on the page, they put up quotes from the webpage, for Peel. They didn't even contact Peel Board for a quote. Oh dear. They just took it off the website. Uh, they didn't contact Health Canada or the local health board for a quote. Lazy. Right? It was just it was bad journalism, right? And it was fear mongering. And then and then <laughs> Carl, they end the entire thing. Well, the uh, Society for Environmental Medicine in the US says that uh, ending with two very scary, you know, uh, uh, statistics at the end. There was not even any token skepticism. Oh, it, dear. Was, it was, and and they didn't like the peel board said it was four people, and we didn't even get a, to say anything on camera. Like they didn't even contact them. It was it was just bad journalism. So we I wrote a letter on behalf of Bad Science Watch, and uh, I wrote a, an article in the in the Huffington Post about it, That's cool. um, which attracted Deborah Davis because uh, I mentioned her in the article. She's actually a she's a a blogger for the U.S. Uh, Huffington Post as well. So we had some lively conversation, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it was just bad journalism, and and I think that, and we're fighting like that's like of all the things to fight against, right? It's bad enough that we've got this monolith, not a monolith. We've got this very well organized and well funded uh, national campaign to spread misinformation and fear about smart meters and wireless and cell phones. Like if that wasn't bad enough, now we've got a reporter who doesn't care to do even. A false balance story. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's know. the thing that we should, what we didn't mention is that that the in Canada at least that the anti wireless people, yeah, they are well funded and well organized, and they've got you know like little kits you can download and to get wireless out of your local school, like you know they they yeah, we're kind of up against like I say, just sort of. Um, a not organized kind of skeptic kind of here's some URLs read these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and we have p- people like the Catholic Teachers Board in uh, our Teachers uh, Union Association. Oh boy, <laughs> one of them, an association that represents Catholic teachers in Ontario, who have come out against Wi-Fi in the classroom. We need an extra day off. Yeah, <laughs> like, I've got fatigue. And sleeping problem. If I had to have a classroom, I, I mean, I, I don't envy teachers their job at all. If I had a classroom of 10-year-olds all day, I'd have fatigue and sleeping problems as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's a hard job. Yeah. And, 
so that and uh, now the, the good thing is though, I mean, there's well, despite a couple communities questioning this, um, science really is winning out. Quebec had a, a, a the Quebec uh, Hydro wanted to put smart meters in, and they had a big hearing, and all the guns came out, all the anti-Wi-Fi guns came out to hear it, to, to speak at the hearing. And the Quebec Hydro went, you know what? You guys are terrible. I don't believe you. All the science you gave us was terrible. David O. Carpenter, this doctor from New York State, uh, who they felt misrepresented himself as an MD, um, you know, had a, they just completely dismissed his testimony. And they said, you know, it, you haven't made a case, sorry. And they just went ahead with smart meters. Oh, okay. Um, the, the, right now, the... The Human Rights Commission in BC has um, has a complaint by uh, Ursula St. Clair, who's the, one of the organizers in BC from C4ST, and by Science Watch has put an intervener application to actually speak at that hearing because we want to make sure that there's a there's a third party nonpartisan sort of scientific voice, not just BC Hydro and C4ST. We hope I hope we get intervener status. We may not. Um, we haven't really told. This is the first time that I've sort of told anybody about it publicly um so jamie may have a fit but i don't think you i like we, we we're, we're trying to get in there to talk about it uh and present our paper and we've got somebody to go in to speak with them um so that might happen uh so we're trying to, to sort of fight this and this paper we had in the in the uh, that we put out at the beginning of the year has certainly been a useful tool uh we've been told by many people in school boards and cities who have been trying to counter the fear so i think that the largely the science is so pretty overwhelming i mean health canada is on board industry canada is on board most 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 local health units are on board that i you know this is not they can they've made a lot of noise and they haven't made a pretty big dent okay. they've scared a lot of people they've confused the public but I think the science is winning. Good. Yeah, I saw this on City City TV, which is sort of a local TV station. No, I'm not telling you because you know what City TV is, yes. <laughs> listeners. But um, yeah, they they had sort of uh, I believe a story about. Um, and this is why it's like people. There's a big people conflate wireless Wi-Fi with cell phones now with the smart meters with dirty electricity and all this crap and and it was sort of about um this is an old guy like you know kind of World War II you know reds are under my bed type John Bircher <laughs> version of a Canadian and uh and uh and, and you know Ontario Hydro came and put a smart meter on his on his land which they're allowed to go onto your land and and, and he's convinced that the smart meter is you know watching him and right. and then his sister or his or his uh, daughter's convinced it's you know you know all these health problems and and they 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 kind of played it up like you know feisty old guy taking on uh big bed hydro you know ontario hydro which i think that might be a Canadian term, hydro. We just sort of mean you know, the, the electric company. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, um, and they, they sort of cast it as that. And you know, of course, they're going to the hydro PR flack, and you know, she's just sort of. And so it's sort of like old guy versus you know hydro PR, and, and uh, you know who's going to win in that? You know the the you know the greatest generation old guy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and and yeah, and not going to anybody else, like in terms of skepticism or something. Oh. No, no, you're absolutely right. And that kind of frame is very typical. I mean, this Wendy's, Wendy, uh, the Wendy from Oakville, <laughs> whose last name I can't even remember. Um, she apparently was a pilot. 
I think okay. uh, it's her story. And so she was she she was a pilot, and of course, in the front of the pilot is a giant nose cone of avionics that is <laughs> beaming out, you know, radar and everything else, right? Yeah. And uh, and she and you know, if anyone's going to have it, I you know, I would give it to her to have it, of course. Yeah. Um. So. You know, but but her but her story about Wendy walks Wendy walks for Wi-Fi. Uh, she was going to walk to Ottawa and demand you know action. That kind of small guy against the monolith uh, is uh, is a really potent frame. Yeah. And the other one is this. I mean, Davis's book. Uh, just going back to disconnect for a second. Builds this conspiracy of the industry who has vested interest in selling this technology. Uh, is heavily invested in the tech infrastructure. Of course, doesn't want to see it dismantled, doesn't want to see limits put on it, um, and doesn't want to go to the I – I, like, I don't know what they expect uh, as far as – like, reducing limits of exposure just makes the technology different. I don't know, it decreases your cell phone reception. I'm not sure what they want. But, but, that, that, but that idea of a giant, you know, uh, money-hungry, greedy – uh, I mean, I, I, I'm about as mad as at Rogers as the next guy here in Canada, uh, and Bell and whomever else. But, uh, but I don't think that there's some sort of boardroom where they, they discuss their Wi-Fi, you know, culling strategy for yeah. the population. Um, but, but, like, who doesn't want to believe that you know Rogers, Bell, and Telus and Wind are all colluding to? Uh, together to to steal our money and and support the technology. That's a strong, that's a strong, in like like theme in independent, you know, not even libertarian but left wing, you know, politics. And uh, and so it doesn't surprise me that that's the frame. Um, unfortunately, there's no evidence of a conspiracy. I think we should probably wrap it up there. That's a good. That's a good. That's a. That's a good. Good line to end on. Um, I didn't ask you the Korean questions. If it's not too personal, uh, so, so we know you're a paramedic. Yes. Um, and and so how, how old are you? I'm 41 this year. 41. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And uh, turning 40 is okay. 30s I found was really hard, but turning 40 is okay. I. It hasn't bothered me. I think uh, everyone, I've, everyone at work convinced I'm in my early 30s because I was hired. Because I'm uh, later, I came at the career later, so I was hired with a bunch of 25 year olds. And though I don't didn't look 25 at the time, you know, maybe I didn't look 40 or 38, whatever I was when I got hired. So I think I had them convinced. I don't. It doesn't really bother me though. Turning 30 for me wasn't a big deal, and turning 40 was less of a big deal. And uh, I still consider myself like. 25. Although I've been 80 since I've been 10, yeah. <laughs> in many ways, you know, kind of hanging out with the adults and shaking my fist at people. So uh, maybe that is why I'm resilient. Okay. To 40. Are you married? Do you have children? Is that good? I am unmarried. I am. I am one of the uh, many, uh, many gay skeptical leaders. Okay. Following okay. in the footsteps of DJ and. And uh, Grothy and uh, and and uh, of course the amazing Randy, uh, currently single. Um, my POF. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But my uh, I, uh, no kids, uh, though I do have children in my life, which is lovely. Uh, I'm living a lovely, happy single life. You, you're 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 an uncle. I have two. I have a niece and a nephew who oh, are okay. delightful, and uh, they live in Kitchener. But I also have uh, friends in here in uh, Toronto that I that I uh, that I help. Uh, help them with their kids too, and they're lovely. Be, being an uncle is awesome. It, I always it, to have like a little 
little child call you like Uncle, Uncle Carl. You'd be Uncle Michael, but yes, yeah. it's it's almost like it's like being like senator or something, or <laughs> you know, like being called a Kennedy or something. You know, it's just it's just it's just so so nice. You know, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. No, right. it does 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 warm my heart when that happens. Although if they call me Uncle Carl, that'd be even. I think that'd be even better. We all start asking them to do that. <laughs> all right. And uh, so, uh, are, do you have anything coming up? Like, well, do you have a website or it's bad? Bad. What's the Bad Science Watch? You yeah. Know? So, BadScienceWatch.ca is our is our Bad Science Watch website. Of course, we have a whole other campaign about nosodes, about homeopathic, uh, quote unquote, vaccine alternatives. Uh, although they're not vex, they're not alternatives to vaccine. Called StopNosodes.org. And Nosos is spelled N-O-S-O-D-E-S. Okay. Uh, and I can be found on uh, we're on uh, at, Bad, at Bad Science Watch's Twitter. At Anxious Medic is my Twitter uh, own Twitter address. And uh, slash Bad Science Watch on Facebook, and we're on Google Plus, and uh, under the same thing, if you just um, search for Bad Science Watch, you'll be able to find us there. Okay. And then you're up on Skeptic. Skeptic. Skeptic North. So I, I sort of cross post now because yeah. I, I mean I, I'm in school and I work full time, so it's a bit difficult for me to get posts there every week. But I'll cross post stuff on Skeptic North. That'll be maybe the unedited version of my Huffington Post uh, articles, and you can find me at HuffingtonPost.ca uh, as well. And oh, I guess the, my, the, the final question. So um, if you had to uh, be in some sort of science fiction or fantasy army. Based solely on the coolness of the uniform, which uh, science fiction fa- or fantasy army would you uh, would you join? Oh God, it'd be totally a stormtrooper. Are you kidding? I think the forces. Those are, in fact, uh, I I would almost I would almost prefer to be a, a Tie Fighter pilot. I think those black. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Even cooler than the 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 white jobbies, but yes, if I had a vacuum forming machine in my house, I'd be pumping those things out. <laughs> now, don't you don't you paramedics? Don't you guys got like the greatest pants in the world? Like they are quite attractive pants. Although now we have to be have high vis stripes on everything, so you can't really hide. Um, I, you, you don't turn sideways when someone's shooting because all they see is green everywhere. Okay, um, just seems you got like the most useful pockets everywhere in those pants. Oh yeah, oh yeah, pockets everywhere. Although you know what's, you can always tell the how long a paramedic's been on by how little, f- how few things are in their pockets. Oh, so yeah. at the beginning of the career, they have the entire back of the truck in every pocket, <laughs> uh, and everything on their belts from A to Z, like like the flashlight and the scissors and the radio and the pager and the phone and the and 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 the Leatherman and a multi-tool and a three knives and a you know. Uh, an extra uh, journey or whatever, but as you get older, that those things disappear, right? Oh, you just sort of you okay. the fewer and fewer things you take into the call with you because you know that the next abdominal pain is not going to require a, a multi-tool. All right, and uh, and as I always say, I, I'm the podcast. I don't want anything. I don't want donations. Don't go to iTunes and review me, etc. But my guests are always what makes this podcast. So if you're ever at some sort of skeptical convention, which I'm sure you probably do some of these things, and someone's like, oh, Michael Cruz, I liked you on Conspiracy Skeptic. Can I buy you uh, what kind of beverage can somebody buy you? Oh, you can buy me a Blue Moon. When you're in, a Blue Moon is a, is a vice beer. Okay. Is it Blue Moon? It's, I think it's Blue Moon. I never... Anything cloudy and amber. Okay, okay. Which, as long as it's a, it's beer. Okay, a beer, but check with you. Is this yes. beer okay? Oh. Yes, exactly. That's All right. Beer. 
Good. And as I always say, if you're feeling extra flush with cash in this economy, Monster Talk takes donations. Cognitive Dissonance, they take donations. Uh, check out some of those other awesome podcasts that need and want your money. And, uh, donate. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll let you go, Michael. Thank you so much, Paul. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. That was really, that was really, that was really interesting. And, uh, right. yeah. Okay. Okay. Talk to you later. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.